Contemporaneous, like, uh, discussion, just kind of Mike and I talking about things, and a pre-prepared piece. So Mike has done a, has uh, written a piece about uh, a particular aspect of UNM's secret architecture that you may have heard rumors of, and hopefully we're all going to learn a little bit of something about that. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and start with that. So... Thank you all for coming here. This is awesome. You know, a lot of times you do events in Albuquerque and just everybody you know shows up. I see tons of people here that I've never seen before. You guys are great. I don't know who, like most yeah. of you are. This is fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> so, we, our last episode was about secret Albuquerque, and we talked about a number of, like, lesser-known things about the city. Um, and we're following that up with secret UNM. And uh, I thought a good framework for this story... Uh, would be uh, talking about the steam tunnels. How the many of you know about the tunnels. mysterious steam tunnels? The access right, tunnels underneath. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Jordan's>. <laughs> All right, I see some knowing looks. All right. Well, we should, we should talk later. Um, okay. So this is, uh, this is, this is uh, just a little piece I wrote. And this is going to lead into some other things that we're going to talk about. All right. When I was an undergrad at UNM, majoring in English with a minor in history, I worked for a couple of years delivering the Daily Lobo around the school in my little green Honda Civic, and I got to know UNM's sprawling campus pretty well. One early morning, though, loading newspaper boxes near Logan Hall, the psychology building, I saw a place I had never seen before. Double doors opening wide onto what looked like a massive, barely lit concrete tunnel heading down beneath the building. I wanted to go in and check it out, but I had my baby daughter, Anodyne, riding along with me then barely one, and I didn't feel like I, got, like I could do both A, being a good parent, and at the same time B, taking my infant daughter down into a dark tunnel about which I knew nothing while I was supposed to be working. So, <laughs> Hasn't stopped him since. That's true. Uh, so I got out and looked at it a bit. Later I figured out that you can just trespass with children and people like will give you a pass. We got in the rail yards, it's great. Uh, <laughs> um, so I got out and looked at it a bit, just the entrance, noted some very old ironwork, some kinds of pipes, a lot of concrete, and then drove on. But it stayed with me what I had seen, even though I never saw those doors open again. And I talked with people about it. I was talking to a barista at the coffee shop. Then it was a satellite, I think, in UNM bookstore that day. And I knew he was really into urban exploring, and I knew there was hardly an abandoned or secret space in Albuquerque he hadn't explore, explored. And so I told him about the tunnel I had seen. And then he told me that UNM, UNM, the University of New Mexico, has six levels, six stories of old-fashioned steam tunnels underneath it, going back to when the whole school was steam-powered. He told me he had been in them, in most of them, and he said they were cool, but uncomfortably low-ceilinged and really hot at times. 
He didn't seem particularly enthused about them, but whatever. I wanted to see them for myself. Don't you? They sound amazing. There's, a, there's an unpopular Google group online right now barely discussing how best, how best to get into them. One urban explorer there says, I've extensively explored the flood control tunnels underneath the University of New Mexico campus, but can't seem to find a way into the steam tunnels. I know they're there, and there are six miles of them under campus. I just can't find a way in that I wouldn't have to break something to get into. And a, uh, a January 27, 2011, Daily Lobo article written by Chelsea Urban had some more information. It confirms that there are six miles of tunnel, tunnels, but it also gives a warning. And most saddening of it all, it kind of does make the tunnels sound dangerous and uncomfortable. That article reads in part, under the buildings, walkways, and tennis courts of UNM lays a maze of underground tunnels university officials avoid speaking of. Officially known as the Ford Utilities Steam Distribution Tunnel System, which is a great name. <laughs> uh, UNM Utilities spokesperson Jeffrey Zumwalt said the physical plant department keeps the tunnels a secret because they pose a security concern. He said the main concern is the safety hazards that exist in the tunnels. We try to downplay the tunnels and we discourage information about them, he said. In a perfect world, we would prefer the public didn't even know they existed. They are not a safe place for public use. There are steam pipes in there which are a temperature hazard because they can get up to 200 or 300 degrees. It's dark down there, and they're not really designed for people to walk through. Maintenance workers are in the tunnels every day working on various pipes and wiring, wearing heavy-duty leather gloves and protective gear. The tunnels allow workers to repair and improve the plumbing beneath the school without having to dig something up any time something breaks. Someone could write a sort of upstairs-downstairs type story about UNM, where there are the students above and then the workers and the tunnels literally right below them. Then in the second season, as if by hypnosis, the students go down into the tunnels to work, and the workers, apparently in some kind of trance, come up and enroll in school for like a year. <laughs> then the characters switch back just as mysteriously, but the actors playing them don't. And then the tunnels themselves begin to talk in a booming whisper that seems to come from right inside your own mind. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just throwing some ideas out. <laughs> but that's what's so cool about these things. They're tunnels, a dark secret world beneath our seemingly uh, obvious one. A former neighbor of mine is a plumber and uses these flexible hose-shaped fiber optic cameras to see inside pipes. And he showed me inside a pipe deep beneath his Northeast Heights home once. A bit of standing water, a single twitching cockroach, and the roots of some kind of plant down from above. To me, that was thrilling. Seeing someplace perhaps no one had seen before. I want to know the secret world, and such tunnels as UNM's are, are such a world. They're like that pipe beneath the house, but we could move through these. On April 7th, uh, an April 7th, 1997 Albuquerque Journal article tells of a prolific thief who stole a lot of property from UNM's various buildings, which the thief accessed by opening steam tunnel entrances, entrances with a large pipe wrench that left gouges and marks. During a four-year stretch in the early 1990s, the thief, soon dubbed the Pipe Wrench Bandit, broke in around 70 times into buildings all over the campus and stole about $183,000 worth of valuables, mostly electronics. He disappeared then for about a year but started up again in early 1997. The distinctive scrapes and gouges of the pipe wrench's teeth appeared then on a door handle of the UNM Children's Psychiatric Center, and that was the eighth time police said that they had seen those markings since the previous year. I don't like thieves because... I don't like being stolen from, but there's something Phantom of the Opera-like about this guy that I'd like. Like, if the Phantom of the Opera was also that weird hermit from Maine that lived for decades in the woods eating stolen candy, that's how I imagine this guy, living on candy under UNM. <laughs> anyway, there are these steam tunnels underneath UNM. For various reasons, they're a bit secret. 
and Ty and I, since we're talking about secret UNM today, thought these six stories of tunnels might make a good framework for discussing some other secret stories about UNM. So journey with us, if you will, into the land of other sentences about a variety of interconnected topics, the steam tunnels as your narrative framework. Oh my god. All right, keep in mind as we descend, metaphorically, that neither Ty nor myself has been in these steam tunnels. So for narrative effect, I'm going to have to, in my descriptions of the tunnels, draw from both conjecture and lies, as well as from both fiction and untruth. <laughs> All right. Lobo Louis Inferno. Time to descend into the earth, into the steam tunnels, the tunnels of steam. We've hid inside the maintenance shop until after hours, climbed out of our respective hiding places. I was in a stack of tires. Ty was who knows where, but I noticed he smelled like the inside of a vending machine. You were. It doesn't matter. This is fictional. We find the keys, they're well labeled and all on one ring. We find one for a steam tunnel entrance and then manage to slip out without setting off any alarms. We head to the entrance of the tunnel, the one I think I saw beneath Logan Hall, open the door and begin to descend and descend and descend. And quickly, quickly we discover what these steam tunnels are hiding, students. We quickly realize that many of these so-called students at UNM right now must actually be clones or aliens or demons or, or robots. We can't yet be sure, but many students are here and kept like animals in cages. Who knows why? We feel bad for them, and funnily enough, it looks as if we do have a skeleton key to all the cages on our stolen key ring, but we have some serious tunnel exploring to do. And don't really have a lot of time, so we bravely soldier on. This is the first story below the ground. The story is lined with student-filled cages, as I said, as are countless smaller tributary tunnels, all of these tunnels lit only by sputtering wall-mounted torches. And with the conditions of the students' neglect far too sad and far too nauseating to describe here, the sounds of their sobs and screams are hideous. The first story is also a chance to discuss our first story, our first additional story of secret UNM, the very true story of... Luis Jimenez and the statue of the Fiesta dancers. Oh, nice. Did you bring that up? All right, we got some slides. Yeah, sorry about the not rescuing the students thing, guys. Okay. Okay, so you guys probably know this thing, right? You've seen it. Um, who likes it? Nobody, okay, okay, good. We got a, a couple, three people who like, I like it. I'm a fan. I'm a fan, actually. Why? Because it's fucking hideous. It is so ugly. And just the idea of there being public art that is this ugly, being Funded, according to this, I'm talking too loud again. Um, that is being funded by the university, that is being funded by the state. I'm like, yes, good. Art should be challenging, it should freak you out, it should make you a little bit unhappy when you see the title still. Yeah, so here we got Fiesa and Harame. Anybody know the artist? Luis Jimenez, very good. He was actually the teacher of my mother in law. He is, uh, well, he was a, uh, a one-eyed, he had one glass eye, and a, uh, <laughs> who said that makes sense? <laughs> and a pet raven. And he just sort of would stalk around, like, shouting at his students, you know, these terrible, like, curses at them. Um, he died in possibly the most badass way any artist could die. He died being crushed by his own piece of art. Let's, uh, there it is. This is the piece of art that killed its creator. Look at that son of a bitch. That thing is a seriously badass uh, piece of sculpture. It's called, um, I think it's got a really boring name. It's like Blue Mustang. 
like that's all it's called, but it's clearly Spawn of Satan. Um, and if you can see down here in the background, that is the Denver International Airport in the background, which has become the center of an enormous number of conspiracy theories. People say that it's going to be used by FEMA to round up thousands of, I don't know, Republicans or whatever, and put them into camps underground. Um, there's like these murals with people with guns and gas masks that are really like terrifying when you see them. And this statue in particular has become a part of that folklore. It has become a sign that Satan himself owns the Denver International <laughs> Airport. And, and look at it. You kind of think it's maybe reasonable. that's true. It's yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's my story about Luis Jimenez. Nice. Okay. That was very brief. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts about modern UNM since we're oh, descending man. into those? We're going to be going backwards through the century. Yeah, yeah. Through the century. As we go. Deeper into the earth. Um, yeah. Um, Luis Jimenez. I, you know, I went to his uh, funeral. Did you? Yeah, I was oh. a Daily Lobo reporter at the time. And, oh, okay. And, uh, so I got to go cover that. And, like, were there dancing witches or anything? No, <laughs> no. People were just sad for like an artist that they knew um, that had died. And he was he had a lot of he had a lot of stuff going on. Was but, his um, raven there? What was that? Was his raven? There? I don't remember anything about a raven. Uh, but, okay. but you know what? That's really. I think it's like that's the that's the, that's the way you should go. You should be killed by your art. That's the yeah. Way, that's well, the there we go. It's not really helping me survive that yeah. much, so I guess we'll kill I know I'll be crushed by bookshelves. As soon as we get an earthquake, now we're again dead. Yeah. But, right, right, right. You know, so that'll feel like some, something like that. Um, now what else? I mean, uh, yeah, UNM has great public art. I kind of like some of the stuff. Yeah. Except that horrible one by Betty Sabo and her brother-in-law or whatever. Oh, uh, I wish we had a picture of it. Oh, man, it's I can't truly stand terrible. that thing. Now, see, okay, everybody, Courtney, yeah. could you go back one? Yeah. Okay, everybody hates this one very, very vocally. This one is beautiful um, compared There to is a art. statue just to the Dude. north of it, and it's, um, it's like a piece of sort of modern sculptural uh, abstract art. Yeah. And then a bunch of, like, People Rocks. going huh, around it, just looking like they have no idea what to make of this Hard. thing. I've never seen that. I'm offended. I find that the most patronizing oh, uh, piece of art there is. And none of them look like UNM students. They all look like New England transplants. Or something. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. absolutely true. Oh, that's man, I can't true. stand that thing. I'd love to get a bulldozer and just drive around. Man, <laughs> take it out. Okay, anyway. Um, so we talk about the one just to the west, the uh, the cultural crossroads that shows... Uh, center of the universe? No, no, the one, the big billboard. Uh, oh. The with cast iron billboard that shows a crossing between... Yeah. Uh, Mexico and America, and it's got a, on the Mexico side. It's got this sort of very uh, like it's got the McDonald's Mayan. logo and the. Twin That's Towers on the American side, okay. and then on the as uh, the Mexican side, it's got oh, okay. like Aztec gods or Mayan gods or something. I like that one, but I am I'm annoyed that the artist took the razor wire off. Yeah, so originally it had razor wire going across the top of it, and for some reason that was a bridge too far. For uh, for UNM regions, really so they decided up. that was where they were going to pick their battle. They were going to let this thing go. They were going to let the uh, the Benny Sabo piece go. But God forbid you put some barbed wire over a Mexican American crossing. Uh, who would ever think to do that? Yeah. But what bothers me about that one is that the artist whose name I well they eventually capitulated. Yeah, yeah, capitulated. I mean, I would have been like, oh no, get out of here. I made this piece. It's what it yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I, I also money. understand the need for sixty thousand dollars deposited in your bank account. I guess there's a small version of it in Santa Fe you can see with the razor wire. With the razor wire. Yeah. Okay. But um. Okay. Should I keep going? Sure. All right. 
Now the curving tunnels, which seem in this imagined scene to turn and slope in an immense, gracelessly angular, six-mile-long, crude spiral. These tunnels level out to a second story, a massive, clunky oval. More cages in the walls, more students lamenting, but interestingly, less light, fewer torches. The students on this level seem different from the nose up higher, quieter for one thing, and they seem to flicker in and out of reality, and their voices drift like ghosts up and down the low ceiling hall and trade bodies. We notice that these fashions seemed older, a mix of every era of the 20th century. Flappers, hippies, beatniks, nerds, and jocks from 10 different decades. They've been down here too long and kept barely alive and barely in this world, and for what? I get the horrifying feeling that if we continue down, we'll find out. The second story is giving me the creeps, but at least it's a chance to discuss our second story. A very true story. Um, okay, I get it now. All right. Stories? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. Um, but there was an action by the National Guard that I think in today's, in today's world, it would make headlines all over the world. But at that point, it was just sort of all quietly brushed away. And what happened was, um, okay, so to give you a little context, May 4th, 1970. At Kent State University, four unarmed students were shot and killed by National Guardsmen, um, and there were nine further injuries. Um, at the same time, at the University of New Mexico, 1970, Jane Fonda, of all people, was on campus, and she was delivering an anti-Vietnam War speech, and she rallied the students to go and march over to uh, President Headley's office, and she wanted to have a meeting with him, and he refused, right? So they've got all these students around, and Jane Fonda's there too, and suddenly people are talking about what just, literally just happened at Kent State. And that was, it, it just kind of spread through this demonstration like wildfire, and, and they decided they wanted to make a stand, they wanted to do something, they wanted to show that they were part of this national movement and that they weren't gonna be taking this kind of state-instituted uh, violence anymore. So the students at that point decided that they were going to have a, a general student strike at the University of New Mexico um, until UNM released a statement saying that it was against the war in Vietnam and Cambodia um, and that it was against the violence perpetrated at Kent State. And you know they didn't do this in any official capacity I mean, the, the university didn't do this in any official capacity, no matter what their sympathies were. It takes a little while for that kind of action to, to get going on. So the students started occupying buildings all over campus. They occupied the, uh, the ROTC building, and faithfully, they occupied the student union building. So May 8, 1970, four days after the Kent State, I'm going to call it a massacre, um, students were occupying the student union building. At 8.30 in the morning, President Hetty and uh, his vice presidents went to the student union building and ordered the students to disperse, otherwise there would be criminal action taken against them. The students refused, they booed, they jeered him, he left. Um, around the same time, probably about 9 a.m. or so, Governor Cargo, who was a, uh, he was a Republican, he was very like in line with kind of Nixon's policy in, uh, in Vietnam, he met with State Police Chief Martin Vigil about clearing out the, uh, clearing out the, uh, the sitting-in students at, at uh, the Student Union building. Uh, Martin Vigil, at that point, requested the assistance of the National Guard and Governor Cargo 
agreed and then decided it was a good time to take a fishing trip that he'd always been wanting to take. So wow. you know, he headed out and apparently went fishing. Um, all right, so this obviously takes a little while for the National Guard and the police to like mobilize and everything. At three o'clock, Martin Vigil and the National Guard arrive at the University of New Mexico. State police with uh, Martin Vigil begin. They go into the student union building. They say everybody needs to leave. Some people actually do leave at this point. 130 or so refuse to leave. The state police begin arresting people. And according to an officer on the scene, the, uh, the protesters are polite and willing to leave. However, at this exact same moment, the National Guard is setting up a perimeter around the student union building. And now, I'd like to go to an eyewitness report um, from 1970. Someone who was there and saw what was happening, although not exactly what was happening. Uh, my mother, ladies and gentlemen, Julie Bannerman, please clap for my mom. She was 18 in 1970. She was a freshman at the University of New Mexico. Though how could she possibly have even been alive at that point, I ask you, ladies and gentlemen. She was, she was way too young for that. Yeah. So, all right, can you tell me? Cut it out. Bob. Yes. We, we ran out of chairs, so I'm going to just have to kneel on the floor here. Uh, what, was, uh, what was it like in, uh, in 1970 at UNM? What was the general political atmosphere like at that point? Well, since I was 18, and I was from Washington, D.C., so I had just moved to New Mexico. And I don't think that I can really tell you what the atmosphere was on uh, uh -huh. campus compared to any other campus at the beginning. Okay. Um, there were peace marches. There were um, uh, a, there's a lot of um, uh, opposition kind of to actions. the... Um, yeah, a lot of opposition to the war. There were, you know, a lot of guys there on, on the GI Bill coming back from Vietnam. Right, right. And, um, were they wounded at all? I mean, do you remember? Oh, there were a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, we had a friend who stepped on a mine. Actually, first guy in line stepped on a mine. And yeah. He'd spent a year in a hospital in Hawaii, but um, had recovered. Oh. So he was back to being a student. <laughs> and, um, but there were peace marches frequently, and um, I went on a few of them, and... Um, they were always peaceful, started yeah. off on campus, went downtown to Robinson Park or Roosevelt Park, and uh, uh, there was never, the only violence was the people who were watching, right. and they threw rocks at us, but um, that was the only violence that was going on. The police always cleared the roads, uh, you know, just went down Central, so it was... Uh, so they, were, they, they weren't were, trying to round you guys up or anything? No, no, they speaking. were completely you know, compliant okay. with it at that point, yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to May eighth, nineteen seventy. Um, where were you when you first heard that there were things going on? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I uh, I think I might have been over at the food hall because I came from the north side. Right, which and, was, uh, was brand new at that point. Right, it was brand uh -oh. new, and uh, if it even was brand new right then, it might have been over at Hakana where the food hall was at the time. Okay. But I heard that there was a demonstration going on over at the sub, and that the um, I don't know if I knew the National Guard was there at that time or not, but the idea was to go over there and be part of the demonstration. Okay. And you weren't um, politi particularly politically active at that point? 
Just in peace marches, that kind right. of thing, yeah. Not yeah. a relevant organization. You weren't swept up in the student strike or anything like that? I don't think so. You don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> I but, um, and so your father was 19, and well, was I was 18, 18 and yeah. we walked over to the um, uh, sub, and when we got there thinking we were going to go inside, there was a semicircle of National Guard there. Okay. And he noticed that they had their bayonets fixed to their, right. their rifles were at their guns, whatever they were, on the side, on their side. They were not, they, were, um, they weren't they were lifted at that side? point. Right. And okay. they had the bayonets fixed. And um, there were maybe 150 people on the north side. Okay. Um, and so we couldn't go inside. So they were just like, what do we do now? You know, we were just kind of milling around. There's like 200 uh, people or so, I believe, right? Well, like, for on our side, I think maybe, I, you know, it's really hard to remember the numbers. Yeah. There was maybe 100, I, I don't, I'm not really sure. Uh, okay. I'd say at least 100 or so on the north side. And uh, unaware totally that there were people on the other sides of the right. building. So um, we're kind of milling around looking, what are we going to do? Because uh, we can't get in the building. And um, the National Guard was looking pretty nervous. Yeah. They, were, they were young. What did they look like? But they, yeah. they, were, they had their helmets on. They had their you know, uh, guns at their side. They were kind of twitchy looking. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, they didn't look all that young to me at the time because I was younger. But right. um, they were pretty young. And, um, so we were standing there when all of a sudden a truck comes up. It was a van or a uh, like a bread truck or something. I know mm -hmm. you said you were back there at the time. I don't remember, but anyway, um, it had on the side of it sheets, and on the sheet was uh, written in red or black "Mash." Right. And Which I remember just, thinking, the movie had just come out. Right? Uh, yeah, or the TV show or something. And I thought that was the stupidest thing. What the, you know? What were they doing with a mash truck? And it just seemed idiotic and. Um, so the guys got out of the truck and they either had headbands or armbands that said MASH on them. Oh. And um, they went around to the back of the vehicle and pulled out some army surplus stretchers. Okay. And I thought, huh, <laughs> I wonder what they're thinking, you know. Um, and then they kind of disappeared somewhere in the crowd. I think they went around to the side of the building. So um, we, you know, were just still waiting for some leadership to come in. You know, were thought we were like going to have a march. Or was, uh, I don't remember if there were any speeches. I think we were expecting to have some, right. and um, but we didn't know what was going on inside. We had no idea that the people inside had been arrested right. or any of, or if that had even happened at that point. But um, so, at what point did you realize that there was something more okay. going on? Um, suddenly the, the volume of voices from the sides of the building rose and there was screaming and shouting and um, uh, somebody was screaming, they're bayoneting us and the people with the stretcher came along and they were carrying somebody, uh, well there were a couple of people with stretchers, carrying people that were dripping blood on the sidewalk and wow. heading for, they were, you know, and then we looked, turned around, because we're looking that way, turned around the other way, and the National Guard has all raised their rifles and they're leveling around us. And, you know, at that yeah. point, having just had the Kent State thing, having yeah. these people come through that are bleeding and people screaming they're bayoneting us, uh, it was a, it was panic. So what did you answer? We ran. <laughs> ran like, it ran expecting a bullet in the back at any point, you know, because we didn't know what had happened. There'd been no warning. There had been nothing about uh, go home, disassemble, anything. Right. It was completely peaceful gathering, and suddenly there's people bleeding and screaming and right. crying, and 
I was one of them. <laughs> so where did you guys go? Where did you run to? We ran to the um, parking lot where there was some, you know, you could take cover behind the cars. And um, I think that was, I think that must have been next to library, the library. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And everybody was running in all different right. directions. And uh, uh, that's, that's the last thing I remember about that. Oh, so <laughs> it, wow. was, uh, okay. it was frightening. What, what ended up happening? Did, was there, were there consequences for the guards people or like? Uh, it, not it that I'm aware no. of. I, I think uh, everybody, there was always a question of who sent them in the right. first place, who authorized it. Right. And there was some uh, speculation that the president had, had wow. said uh, any kind of, dis wow. uh, any kind of um, uh, display on any campus should be met with the National Guard. Oh, man. That was one of the rumors. So. This, this reminds know. me of, in the in one of the basement bathrooms of Logan Hall, uh, um, there it said there was carved into one of the stall doors, "Kill Pig Nixon and all other pigs," <laughs> and the X in Nixon was the swastika, and wow. it's obviously there for a long time. Like I wonder if, oh, if that goes that. back to that environment. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, Nixon protester, like cosplayer or reactor, some historian <laughs> later on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the picture. What side of the building is that on? What, well, that's what? the book. Isn't that the bookstore? That's right? a, no. That's a no. Mesa Vista over there. Oh, oh, so yeah. which direction is it facing? Student Health Center. Student Health Center. That yeah, you're right. So is it facing? So this is this is the side where the action was taking place. This is where the screams were coming from. What side is it? Um, that's the east side. The east side. Of the okay. Yeah. Okay. That's. Uh, was the frontier there? <laughs> yes, the frontier was there. So the frontier was there. It was away. new and shiny. <laughs> okay, so what happened? Um, this is a piece together from uh, news reports at the time. It's important to note that no outside order to disperse was given. Nobody says there was an outside order to disperse. None of the National Guardsmen said there was an outside order to disperse. And the... Um, the plan to have the unsheathed bayonets was controversial at the time. However, that was how the uh, the National Guard was trained. If they were heading out, they were going to have bayonets on their uh, on their guns. So this is what the Village Voice reported afterwards. Um, they just flipped out, a witness said. A column of 60 guardsmen began moving up toward the front of the sun, facing a group of students and newsmen gathered on a mall divided in the center by a row of huge circular flower pots. So that's these things over here. Right. Suddenly the guardsmen marching forward between the buildings and the flower pots began running toward the students. Their bayonets lowered the students' backs. Billy Norlander, an Albuquerque television newsman for KOB, raised his camera in front of the guardsmen yelling, press, press, as they advanced, but the guardsmen did not seem to notice. One stabbed him in the chest and knocked him to the ground. Another stabbed him again, yelled at him, and stabbed him a third time. Another newsman standing near Norlander was stabbed in the arm. A student running from the guardsman tripped. A guardsman caught up with him, put a bayonet blade in his shoulder, and told the kid not to move, then leaned on his rifle and pushed the blade two inches into his back. Another student was so badly injured by a bayonet that pierced his calf that he couldn't run and just draped himself over a flower pot. As the guardsman passed, two stabbed him again. Five more were stabbed as they ran. And then later, uh, Martin Vigil at a press conference the next day said, I think things went extremely well. <laughs> as much force as necessary, but no more force was exerted. I will do the same thing tomorrow. 
And uh, it is important to note that several of the guardsmen were also wounded. Uh, one apparently managed to stab himself in the nose with a bayonet. <laughs> Sorry, dude. That's <laughs> got to be hard. <laughs> and two more stabbed themselves in the chest. So. Wow. Um, only one student was seriously injured. Several required uh, stitches and so forth. Um, the one who was seriously injured required uh, 40 pints of blood, and it was a, they were afraid that he wasn't going to be able to use his legs again. Um, however, he did. He owns. He, he's still alive. He lives in Santa Fe. He runs a, uh, a jewelry shop on the plaza. I think it's called uh, Dressman's or something like that. Um, the six six of the wounded students sued. However, the uh, the defendants, uh, the members of the National Guard and the State Police, were acquitted because nobody could prove who had done the stabbing itself or who had given the order. So, man. Well, yeah. right. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Julie thanks to my mom. <laughs> it's, it's my goal to get my mother to talk about the, uh, like, literally anything as, as much as possible. That's cool. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's fascinating. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, not at all. You knew Fortunately, a fortunately we live in a totally just society now where these sorts of things happen anymore. <laughs> well, all right. They generally don't ban that people. Oh, right. so, I well, guess. I don't know. Um, Maybe they haven't yet. Anyway, um, the main tunnel continues to spiral downward. The torches get farther and farther apart. The student cages continue, but these on the third story down are mostly empty. When they're not, the cages hold students from the 1800s, standing and holding the bars, faint, only barely visible. And even when they are empty or seemingly empty, moving images of young men in suits with handlebar mustaches flicker in and out of three dimensions. As do young women in bonnets and long dresses. These are the oldest students down here, I'm sure of it. They look as if they're practically dissolving right in front of us. Ty has by this point run back up the tunnel. Not what? that I can blame him. <laughs> so we all go and get him and calm him down. We decide to take a break and share a third true story about secret UNM. The story of... Should we get to the Astupa or the, Let's do the uh, Astupa, Edward Abbey? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Courtney, next photo. Okay. Well, oh, no, this, is, Edward this is Edward Abbey. So okay, let's talk about Edward Abbey. All right. So, do you guys know who Edward Abbey is? How many of you know who that is? Okay. Yeah, all right. All right, great Southwestern author, uh, an environmentalist, an activist, um, just a, a really great person. I, I've got a, I jotted a few notes down right here, but this is Edward Abbey, um, born 1927, died 1989, born in Pennsylvania, died in Tucson, one of the, the fieriest, loudest voices of Western activism about the environment here. Saw the desert as a beautiful place and cared about it for what it was, not as just some browner, lamer version of whatever's east. He, he, loved, <laughs> he loved the West, and uh, New Mexico was really one of the first places where he fell in love with it. Um, one article I read described him as an anarchist, author, hiker, river runner, iconoclastic environmental guru of the Southwest, philosopher, and literary raconteur. But he, uh, he's best known for his writings about Utah and Arizona, but he spent a lot of time in New Mexico. He spent most of a decade here. Um, he, uh, he earned two degrees from UNM in, both in literature and philosophy. He married two UNM students at different times. He, uh, he spent a lot of time exploring New Mexico's backcountry, and uh, he lived briefly in Harris Canyon in a sleeping bag. Um, I have a, this is a cool book here. This is... Uh, Confessions of a Barbarian, Selections from the Journals of Edward Abbey, 1951 to 1989. And this is something he wrote uh, on February 15th, 1952. 
He wrote, I am filled with admiration upon recalling my last semester at New Mexico. Uh, he calls it New Mexico University, but it's UNM. Uh, when in addition to being alive, I was carrying on the following action, activities simultaneously. One, taking six full-time academic courses, working hard enough to get A's in everything but French, that ugly language, completing a double major in philosophy and English, and graduating with honors, two projects in independent research. Two, writing the first 100 pages of my novel, Three, editing, contributing to, getting in trouble with, and getting fired from the student literary magazine. Four, working part-time in Riddle's Tile Factory. Go figure. Five, separating from and trying to divorce my wife. Six, falling in love and carrying on an intense affair with a crazy girl sculptor and painter. Seven, spending the last six weeks of the semester without a roof over my head, living in a sleeping bag on top of a small hill into Harris Canyon. So uh, when I went to UNM, I loved knowing that this guy had gone there and that, that his experiences were, were, um, were so connected to mine, at least uh, situationally, geographically. He first arrived in New Mexico. He, came, he showed up in Gallup, uh, riding in on a freight train in 1943. He was just out of high school. He was traveling the West any way he could, on foot, hopping trains, busing. Uh, he, he, uh, he joined the Army at the end of World War II after that, but he remembered New Mexico really fondly. And he came back. Um, he wrote his first novels here. He had two kids here. And according to one now decade, decade old article, he has a daughter still living here. I would like oh, to sure. meet her if that's true. I don't know that it still is. Um, he tended a bar in Taos. He had a good friend in Santa Fe named Jack Leffler, who was a writer and activist. He would go up and visit him a lot. And he loved the Rio Chamo, which he loved rafting whenever he could. He once, um, do you guys know about the volcanoes prank that used to happen here over and over again where people would stack burning, t stack tires on the top of Vulcan Volcano on the west side and light it on fire? I think the first time that happened was 1947. I was surprised. People fell for that over and over, over again. And over. <laughs> it was just like, oh, crap, the volcano's yeah. erupting. It was yeah. a tire fire last time, but I'm sure it's real this time. When Edward Abbey was a student here, he did that one time. And apparently, yeah, it just kept freaking people out over and over again. The first time I get, that makes sense. Um, let's see here. Um, Somebody should do that again. Yeah, well, except that it's like bad environmentally to like burn a bunch of tires. Right? Uh, I mean, find an environmentally friendly way yeah, to look at this awesome prank. I, I think this is really neat. He wrote a master's thesis about anarchy, attempting to develop a, a distinction between sabotage and terrorism. And here it is, and I think it's actually pretty solid. Terrorism is the act of threatening or committing violence against living creatures. Sabotage is the dismantling of the tools of terrorism. Isn't that cool? That basically saying that like taking apart a bulldozer that's going to wreck a beautiful natural place is just sabotage. It's not. It's violence against property that's totally justified. My mother, according to Edward. Um, yeah. Is she still there? Yeah. Um, either you or my father gave me a gave me a calendar of Edward Abbey cartoons, like illustrations from the Monkey Wrench Gang with oh, quotes. Nice. And when I was about 11 years old, <laughs> look, screwed me up. If you, live, if you live in Albuquerque, and this is not just you and M talking here, if you live in Albuquerque, you need to read the Monkey Wrench Gang because that book is half set here in the 70s, and it's a beautiful tribute to the city. It is like descriptions of downtown Saturday night and how exciting it is with the Wells Fargo building glowing green, like the radium heart of downtown, he says. Oh. You know, yeah, you know, just just burning bill, billboards out in Edgewood. I mean, like, really, like, local, local details. You guys would enjoy that book, I guarantee it, if you haven't read it already. Um, his book, The Brave Cowboy, which he wrote in 1956, was made into a movie called Lonely or the Brave, uh, starring Kirk Douglas. That was largely filmed around Albuquerque. But my favorite thing about Edward Abbey at UNM 
um, aside from his very poetic and electric descriptions of downtown, which I mentioned, um, and aside from the thrill I experienced as a student, knowing that he had had so many experiences in the same space that I was having those, um, was what he did when he was head of UNM's new literary magazine, The Thunderbird, um, when, according to one article I'm going to quote here, as acting editor of the University of New Mexico's literary magazine, The Thunderbird, he decides to print an issue with a cover emblazoned with the words, oh, in fact, we could skip ahead. According to Okay, there we go. Here we go. Um, as acting editor of the University of New Mexico's literary magazine, <laughs> The Thunderbird, he decided to print an issue with a cover emblazoned with the words, man will not be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. The quote Surprisingly is controversial. 1952-1952. <laughs> think of it kind of a conservative time. I don't know if you've seen Far From Heaven. Um, uh, People the, would love it now, I'm sure. Yeah. The, the, the quote is from Diderot, but Abby thinks it's funnier to attribute the words to Louisa May Alcott, which he does. <laughs> <laughs> and so he quickly loses his editorship while the FBI adds a few more pages to a file. Literally, this is in his FBI file. Um, as are some of the angry letters that he wrote to the Daily Lobo. Um, once he wrote in a letter subsequently collected by the FBI, um, in this day of the Cold War, which every day shows signs of becoming warmer, the individual who finds himself opposed to war is apt to feel very much out of step with his fellow citizens. He wanted to form a group to discuss implications and possibilities of resistance to war. So Edward Abbey was a cool dude, and he was a, he was a, he was a part of the UNM experience. And I gotta say, the, the university doesn't brag about him very much. They brag about other people who are like a little more recent and a little less controversial. Susan from Seinfeld. That was like the only famous person uh, uh, that had attended the university oh, when really? I was there. Like they were just like, oh yeah, Susan from Seinfeld. You really heard here. that? I never heard yeah. that. Oh, weird. <laughs> so, and the guy who directed Jingle All the Way. Oh man, I wouldn't brag about that. <laughs> never uh, mentioning that again. Wow. Okay. Well, so that's Edward Abbey at UNM. But, but uh, you know, if you read his books, you will find clues about the University of New Mexico all over them. A number of them have mentions of it. And uh, he obviously drew a lot from his time in New Mexico. And um, from all that, let's see. Okay, so um, story number, okay, we just read story number three. All right, of course, we can never speak of what happens in the steam tunnel's fourth story, never. This is the pact we have made blood oath, the thing we shook on. Personally, I don't even think it really happened. I think we were getting too close, and somehow these not real hallucinations were used to attack and possibly stop us. We were dosed with something, something <laughs> supernatural or extraterrestrial, something that was not real. Of course, if anyone ever says, well, what do you know? You've never lived sentient, terrified, somehow everywhere and nowhere, often, often cripplingly bored and restless for all of time backwards from right now, 13.8 billion years to the Big Bang, and then just as fast the same 13.8 billion years forward in time to the present, where you're snapped suddenly back into who you used to be when you started moving through one level of a tunnel just a few minutes ago. We can all smile knowingly, thinking to ourselves that, yes, we have. Some, something else. Quick, put something else into my brain, anything. Story number four. The all true story, two true story of the Astufa. Oh, the Astufa. Uh, I like that it didn't run away in this section. Oh, yeah. What yeah. was that about? Well, I don't know, Ty. All right. You know what? Be brave. Before I begin this, I need to know are there any, any of you here who are now or have ever been members of Pi Kappa Alpha? All right, good one. Well, I'll go ahead and tell the story. <laughs> all right, next, uh, next photo. All right, so this is uh, this building's still on campus. You may not have seen it. It's at the very western edge between University Boulevard and, what is that, Redondo? Or 
What is the one that goes all the way around? Oh, that's a good question. Redondo. Redondo. Okay. Um, right around the Hibben Center, right around where you can get from university onto uh, Redondo. It's called the estufa, uh, which means stove in Spanish. It is modeled after a Pueblo Kiva, which is a um, well, a building that's uh, at least partially, sometimes all the way underground, where various sacred ceremonials take place. This one, however, is not um, of Pueblo provenance. However, it is the first building on UNM campus to take on the Pueblo style and kicks off the Pueblo revival architectural movement, which <laughs> but on UNM, you know, pretty much every building on UNM is, you know, stucco and kind of square, right? So it's this is this is really small, right? It's quite small, yeah, okay. yeah very small. Okay. So it's um, it was built in uh, 1909. Um, there was a group of students, a sort of a proto fraternity called the Yum Yum Boys at that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what they were called. And they were an organization that had lunch together. And that's why they were called the Yum Yum Boys. Um, so at that point, uh, UNM's, I'm not sure what president he was, but he was uh, like president number four or something. His name was William Tite. And he had come from uh, the Midwest, an older academic kind of uh, area. And he really wanted to bring fraternity life to, uh, to UNM. So he took these yum yum boys under his wing. <laughs> and that, so that was one of his, <laughs> that sounds really kind of dirty. I don't know. <laughs> that was one of his passions was fraternity life. And the other was he was actually very like, he was very interested in Pueblo, the Pueblo world. He was very interested in Southwestern Native American culture. And he thought that he would like to leave his mark on UNM by um, changing the way that the, the, the university saw itself. He saw UNM as a Pueblo on a hill. That's what he wanted. And so his first kind of experiment in that area was building the Yum Yum Boys a secret clubhouse where they could have lunch together. <laughs> so he taught them to lay adobe bricks. Um, and they built this thing uh, in the shape of a kiva. Um, and no one else was allowed into it. And the rumor at the time was, nothing comes out of the estufa but smoke. You know, very mysterious. So immediately, the yum yum boys suddenly start to seem a lot cooler. <laughs> um, so cool, in fact, they realized that the name yum yum boys was kind of holding them back. So they changed it to Alpha Alpha Alpha, which is marginally better, going by Tri Alpha. And then in 1915, so you know, this, this group has been around having lunch together at their secret clubhouse for about 10 years at this point. Um, they became uh, a, what do you call it? Do they call it franchise? I don't know what they call it. Um, they became part of Pi Kappa Alpha, the second official fraternity at the university. And that's when things start to get pretty weird with the Astufa. The Pi Kappa Alphas were fond of stealing things. And one of the first most famous things that they stole is they launched a raid on Isleta Pueblo uh, to the south of Albuquerque. And they stole various artifacts and a ladder from Isleta. And they brought it back to 
the uh, the Astufa, and they hold up in there, and the um, the people who lived on uh, Isleta, uh, a number of them came up and surrounded the place and waited for them to come out. Are you serious? This, this is amazing. Yeah, this <laughs> And they never came out. <laughs> and the rumor is, is that they have a secret tunnel that goes from the Astufa to their uh, actual um, front building, which was built right around the same time. That's the rumor. I don't know if it's true, but that is supposedly what happened. And eventually, the uh, the Isleta, um, the Isleta uh, citizens, residents, whatever, uh, got tired of waiting and left. So, um, and then. Um, and then all was kind of quiet at the Astupa until about 1962, although things kept going missing all over campus from any organization that was kind of like an enemy of Pi Kappa Alpha. So, 1962, kind of the first stirrings of the civil rights movement come to UNM. Um, and UNM is not known for being particularly segregated, although uh, there were definitely areas where that was the case, including the fraternities. The fraternities were racially segregated at that time. Um, and that became a point of contention among the progressive students at, at, at the university who believed that they needed to, to purge that. Um, in 1962, the first African-American nominee for uh, UNM Student Council President, a guy called uh, Ed Lewis, um, ran on a slate of progressive students, um, called the Progressive Student Party originally. And uh, when they announced their candidacy, there was suddenly a great deal of uh, a pushback from most of the Greek community, um, the fraternity community. They started writing letters to Lobo and saying, well, we have the right to you know, associate with who we want and all that uh, kind of stuff. Um, interestingly enough, a few of the members of the Progressive Student Party slate were actually uh, fraternity members themselves who had a belief that this was wrongheaded, and they made it a part of their platform that they were going to um, desegregate the fraternities. So mostly this, uh, this kind of battle was being fought in the pages of the Daily Lobo editorial section until... Let's see, what, what day was that? Um, can you go to the next uh, next slide? Tuesday, April 2nd. So Monday, April 2nd, the night of month. <laughs> hey, don't point that out yet. <laughs> Monday, April 2nd, there was a bombing campaign at the University of New Mexico. Um, the kind of bombs that they were were what you'd call incendiary bombs. They, uh, they took um, cherry bombs and put them into... Uh, like cleaning fluid that would then burst into flame. And they threw them, whoever they were, uh, threw them at the fraternities that had members who were on this progressive slate. And they broke into the Daily Lobo office and poured like some kind of acid solution all over the papers and the furniture and everything. Um, and stole a bunch of stuff. And they left a bunch of racist, threatening letters, and one of them said that if Ed Lewis wins the presidency, he will become a victim of the KKK. Now, interestingly enough, one of these bombs was thrown at the uh, Pi Kappa Alpha headquarters, but they missed it by a good long shot. So, at this point, there is, uh, so this is the headline from the day afterwards, and I just 
We, we I'm sorry, promise. I have to point this out. So that the terrorists hit UNM, a wave of French culture-style terrorism hit the UNM campus early Sunday morning, bomb-throwing vandals causing an estimated several hundred dollar damages to the houses of several Greek-letter organizations. And then, of course, we have over here, extreme petting must stop, says Dr. Cassis. I'm sorry. The <laughs> juxtaposition is just mind-blowing. Who wrote that? Oh, my God, that's novelist Michael McGarrity. It's got to be him, right? That's him, yeah. That's yeah. So anyway, those were the concerns of the day. Oh, and the other thing, these letters were all signed. They were all signed Theta Nu Epsilon. Which is not a fraternity that exists at UNM. It's not a fraternity that exists anywhere. It is a secret inter-Greek society that's supposedly an offshoot of the Skull and Bones Society. Um, and the rumor is, and, and I believe that they're, like if you look up Theta New Epsilon today, you can see that there are still people talking about them and trying to get them out of different aspects of various campuses and so forth. And often they're very like uh, racist. Like, that's kind of their MO. So they were known for um, being super conservative and um, for rigging elections and so forth. So anyway, um, that's just one more weird wrinkle. It's not known if there were any actual members or whatever of Theta, theta new, to, new Epsilon, but that's how they were signing the, uh, the letters. So Probably just to scare the hell out of the What's the deal with that place now? What's the, what's the, like, can you go oh, to yeah. this do forever? No, you can't. No? You can't. Hold it. Don't jump okay. in your head. All right. <laughs> so the day after the election, um, at which point uh, Ed Lewis and his progressive party was uh, was beaten, um, from my perspective, sadly, by a hastily thrown together coalition called the God, what were they called? Racist. <laughs> the Student Party for Responsible Action. Oh. Yeah, can't be responsible and oh. integrate things. Um, so they, they won the day. Uh, the day after they, they won the day, uh, the Albuquerque police arrested four members of Pi Kappa Alpha and uh, raided the Astufa, um, finding not only the items that were stolen from the Daily Lobo, but also a number of items that had been uh, reported stolen for decades from various uh, UNM organizations. Those four students were um, tried for theft, but not uh, not vandalism or giving any theft. And then the uh, the president of the university, um, don't know who was the president at that point, but he uh, he was like, "Come on, we have four rooms of Pi Kappa Alpha stashing these things in the Astufa and basically using it as their headquarters. The whole organization is implicated, and so they were suspended for one month." <laughs> And they're still on campus to this day, and the Astufa is still there, and you still can't go into it. Every once in a while, somebody hits it with a car. <laughs> Presumably accidentally. Um, there was also another incident where it's a, there was a buildup of natural gas in the basement uh, and exploded at one point in, uh, in the 60s. But, uh, so that's the Astufa. Wow. I've always wondered about that weird little building. I yeah. heard that like no women were allowed. That's Yeah, that's another thing. No women allowed. Yeah. It says... No woman has ever stepped foot in the Astufa. Wow. There was even a um, Ripley's Believe It or Not cartoon that, uh, that said that no women allowed. And, like it was some kind of amazing fact. Wow. <laughs> Only men have ever stepped in here. And I gotta say, so this great. is a story I've never seen reported anywhere else. I only found it by digging through the Lobo archives. I mean, that was, I have not, that, that's not in any of the books of UNM history. That's not in Miracle on the Mesa or anything like that. Good so. Work, I, uh, I, I couldn't believe that that was just sort of forgotten. 
Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Shall we continue? We'll just let us continue. Deeper into the weird... Are we doing an intermission with the band? Oh, or we were we... going to do an intermission, were we? Not with the band, but just an intermission. Well, let's go ahead and finish up. And then we'll Should we? Okay. Yeah. All right. I guess we're not doing an intermission. But we will beg you guys for money later on for the Tanix. Let's take a little break after. Before the music? Okay, we'll take a break after the, the, the discussion part. And, and we'll, uh, Perfect. We'll, yeah. All right. Okay. So, same thing with the fifth level of the main tunnel. More hallucinations. I just remember <laughs> not existing for, I don't know, trillions of years, quadrillions of years, not existing and sadness. I do remember an intense sadness, an intense, pervasive, basically eternal sadness. It kind of left a mark on me. I've got to be honest. I feel different now. I don't think it was real. I think we imagined it, but it left a mark. Like, now I am a mark that it left and nothing else. Anyway, how about a fifth fun story of secret fun, UNM, to celebrate the fifth story of the steam tunnels and that story's Infinite soul searing darkness. Okay, story number five. The true story of tuberculosis and the founding of UNM. Hello. Alright, so our university owes its standing in the world today to a terrible disease that was ravaging America and the world in the uh, in the early 1900s. Um, when UNM was founded, and I'm sorry, I have to tell you a quick lie, a lie that gets repeated a lot, but it's a wonderful lie. Um, supposedly, when uh, UNM was founded in 1889, it was part of a parcel of uh, three different projects, the penitentiary, the lunatic asylum, as they put it, and, uh, and the University of New Mexico. And the university was the least popular of those three. And so the, uh, the, the powers that were at that point were concentrated in northern New Mexico. and. Um, Santa Fe and Las Vegas were, were the most influential, Las Vegas, New Mexico, uh, the most influential players on the, on the scene at that point, and they basically divvied up the two prizes, the lunatic asylum and the penitentiary uh, among themselves. The reasoning being that, and I quote, the, uh, there will always be lunatics and prisoners in New Mexico, but maybe not college students. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, that is, a, that is a bit of a lie. That is an often repeated lie. Um, you see it in numerous history books, but uh, uh, Mark Simmons, who wrote Albuquerque Narrative History, points out that the penitentiary had actually existed for five years in Santa Fe prior to that. Okay, so, uh, but the basic reasoning behind it is sound, because in 1889, the Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico was not a populated or well-educated territory. There, there just weren't a lot of people who were ready for college at that point. And so there was a real concern that they weren't going to be able to like actually justify having a university um, when they opened UNM's door. They, uh, they sent um, advertising materials all over the place. Um, a number of people who, uh, who had children who were ready to go to UNM uh, to, to receive a college education were very reticent about doing so because Albuquerque in 1889 had a reputation for being filled with criminals and drugs. Um, Good thing we got away. Can you believe that? that? (laughs) What a silly time. Um, Well, there was there was a section of town called Hell's Half Acre that was uh, you know it was just filled with like saloons, brothels, and opium dens and. um, basically just had gunfights all the time. So people were justifiably like concerned about sending their, their kids out here. Um, and that was kind of the way it was uh, until about 1900. The first class at UNM had about 80 people in six 
teachers and did not teach any college-level courses. They basically functioned as a, you know, basically a high school at that point. They, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. But yeah, so they, they functioned as basically a, a high school at that point. And they were, in fact, the only public school in Albuquerque at that point. Um, that started to change right around 1900 because there was, like I said, a tuberculosis epidemic. And at that point, the going theory was that tuberculosis was caused by swampy air in dark, overcast areas. So East Coast, a lot of people were getting tuberculosis. It's because of swampy air and the fact that it's overcast and you don't see the sun that often. So conversely, it stands to reason that if you want to get better from tuberculosis, you need to go to a place with dry air and sunny skies, and that is exactly what Albuquerque is. So let's go to the next slide. Oh, I forgot Frankie. Eh, we're going to skip all that. Um, okay, we won't get to that. So Albuquerque, the, uh, the city fathers at that point, were like, hey, that's kind of us. Why don't we start marketing ourselves as the heart of well country or the heart of health country? As you say here, see here, um, it is the only city of any size in the Southwest that possesses the necessary altitude and low humidity. Also, it is the only city with an ideal climate on the main line of the railroad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So people started, started coming to Albuquerque um, from the east to get better from their tuberculosis. And the people who were coming were the people who had enough money to do so. And the... Um, lucrative thing, I guess, is what you'd say about tuberculosis, is that it cuts across class lines. People who were moneyed and well-off were getting it at about the same rate as, as the impoverished, um, but they could afford to do something about it, which is to like move to New Mexico. So there was a huge influx in Albuquerque's population as these, uh, let's go to the next slide, these sanatoriums started springing up all over the places. These were basically hospitals where people could rest and get fresh air. They had these little outbuildings you see all around, these little tiny shacks that had uh, screened-in porches so people could sleep on the porches and get better. Um, climatology, as they called it, the idea that you would get better from uh, from the climate of Albuquerque was a crock of shit. It did not work. Um, <laughs> Sometimes, I mean... People did get better, but they got better at exactly the same rate that they got better in New York or wherever. The important thing was that they had moved across country and then they were no longer like counting against the population of people who were dying of tuberculosis in New York or whatever, which made the New York uh, kind of city more than happy to help facilitate people moving out west. But some people did survive, and the people who did survive spent years and years getting better and oftentimes started a new life for themselves in Albuquerque. Um, oftentimes they were very well educated, they, uh, they came from college backgrounds themselves, and when they got better, they needed something to do with themselves in the new place that they had started a family or whatever, and one of the opportunities to do so was at the University of New Mexico. And so UNM's um, faculty started to get much more like educated and well off, um, and their children also needed a school to attend to, and not everybody uh, could afford to send their kids all the way back east, so they went to, they went to UNM. And then not only that, one of the very first uh, medical research projects at UNM was, um, was hit upon by a guy 
who realized that we've got a, pop, a huge population of tuberculosis patients here. And so they started swabbing their cheeks and studying the results. And that was the first like research project that put UNM on the map, actually. So thank you, tuberculosis. <laughs> what a, yeah, that disease did help Albuquerque a lot, right? Yeah, it helped a lot. It's actually helped our uh, medical system. Um, it's uh, a lot of a lot of people came out um, who later became major players in the right. defense industry. So people like Oppenheimer were uh, set out for health reasons. The climatology wasn't just tuberculosis, but there were various reasons. A lot of writers too. A lot of writers. Conrad yeah. Richter and whoever. William S. Burroughs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. He went to, uh, he attended the boys' school in Los Alamos before what? there was an actual town of Los Alamos. Fascinating. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, awesome. Tuberculosis. You don't know. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know. If you go to the, uh, some of the medical school buildings at UNM, they, they still have like exhibits that you can check out. Oh, yeah. All the tuberculosis equipment. Some of it's fantastic. It's just great lung siphoning accordions and things like that. It's really extreme. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, that's great, Ty. That's good stuff. Thanks, Mike. All right. Uh, the steam tunnels continue sloping down, growing narrower, going deeper, and we come at last to an immense opening, the sixth story. Here, the tunnel arrives at its center and opens up into a vast cavern. Clouds of sulfur fill the air, of course. The suddenly rock walls glow red, and former UNM president David J. Schmidley is here, somehow hundreds of feet tall. Probably thousands of feet tall, only his torso visible above a vast frozen lake of liquid nitrogen. His arms are thrashing around everywhere, swatting at bats or cave swallows. And I can see he's holding a bus-sized copy of Team of Rivals, his favorite book by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Perhaps enraged that the light in here is not the best for reading in. Read, we can hear him growling. And we are, of course, reminded of the inspirational poster he appeared on years ago. <laughs> when, when somehow we knew him or one of his identical offspring as one of UNM's literally human presidents. Above him, we can see parts of the life essences of the caged students up above, their almost liquid ghosts, you might say, trickling out of the walls and sealing into him slowly. For him, frustratingly slowly. Every day, he steals more of them and gains more of power as smaller versions of himself roam the tunnels furtively, slipping from shadow to shadow. I spotted at least three, loading the cages with new students and then taking the forms of the kidnapped students before returning to the world above. I watched the newest little Schmidleys emerge like maggots from the giant Luciferian Schmidleys' neck and arms and sides where they've been feeding and feel a deep shiver of horror. We think about doing something to stop all this to defeat whatever horrendous plan appears to be happening, but then we realize we're just here to observe and share with people what we find. Besides, we're all getting pretty hungry and a beer would be nice. We need to be getting back out. And that's enough of story number six. It's enough of these tunnels. And so let us end there, deep below UNM, and let's end with story number six of Secret UNM, a simpler story, a beautiful story, the story of the desert beneath it all, the oldest story around. The first white settlers around New Albuquerque called it the East Mesa, where UNM is now, and it was e as it was east of everything then. The city of New Albuquerque was mostly crowded down around what are now the numbered streets of downtown. Hispanic settlers called it El Llano, the plain. The many tribes that lived here before no doubt had their own names for it. I'd like to know them. And before everyone, even bef before even the animals we know today, before the concept of names, the desert was there, in some form anyway, and it's still there. Beneath the lawns and the sycamores, beneath the buildings and the plazas, the desert, the most secret UNM of all, the one that always was, always is, and always will be.
microbes in the soil, insects on every level, plants and animals, the sand, the rock, the wind, the sun, the dark, the desert, everything. That's all we've got for you. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.